I really want it to be 80s newscaster music. This show is not allied with any sect, denomination, political entity, organization, or institution. Does not engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any cause. Neither do we. We are not affiliated with Al-Anon or any other 12-step program. The opinions expressed here are strictly of the person who gave them. Please take what you like and leave the rest. Hi, I'm Corey. Hi, Corey. Hi, I'm Claire. Hi, Claire. And, and this, this is Crosstalk. Cross <laughs> All right. This is episode two of two of our very special series where we take you, the listener, behind the scenes to get to know your hosts, Corey and Claire. <laughs> and a few weeks ago, we had Claire as crosstalked by Corey. And today, you're going to have Corey as crosstalked by Claire. That's right. Then let's just get right to it, you know. Um, get right to the we're just, we're, Yeah, we're just going to hop, hop, hop right in, Corey. And, you know, I would love for your, in the traditional sense of our program, I think it's going to be kind of like the concept of, you know, what it was like before, what brought you to the rooms, and then what it's like now. And I would love um, just like start at the very beginning. What was it like growing up? Hard pass on the did you, grow, yeah, did you did you grow up and did you grow up in alcoholism, Corey? Let's start there. What was it to, like? Corey was born, and then what happened? Go. Well, Corey's story is very interesting. Um, yes, he was he was definitely <laughs> born and baptized in alcoholism. Um, yeah. Well, first of all, I'd like to say that I love Al-Anon, and I'm. I would also like to say that I didn't prepare for this, which I love. Um, I love that which too. is maybe a sign of my poor leadership skills, but um, I didn't prepare for this. So anyway, I've done this lead before, I suppose, in the rooms. And so I will take you through the highlights. Um, I was born the second of two children. Um, and then when I was about three, well, first of all, when I was born, my mother, uh, kind of nearly died, I guess, had to have an emergency hysterectomy. And apparently I was put in the Nikki, not Nick, Nikki, like I was in those little like plastic bins with the lights and my mom couldn't hold me for a week. And uh, my dad fed me like two or three times a day. And only later through the glory of uncover, discover, discard, that is our program. Did I think to put the pieces together to think, you know what? My dad fed me three times a day and he used to talk about the fact that he got up in the middle of the night to feed me so that I'd be regularly fed by a parent, which is really sweet. But what was I doing the other 20 hours a day, 22 hours a day, uh, probably laying in a plastic bin by myself, having just been forced into the world. So I think that kind of sets up the secret sauce of uh, attachment and fear that probably it programmed me from the get. So I had a really nice childhood from all accounts. And then when I was three years old, my brother drowned in a swimming pool. Um, my, it was a public pool. My parents were there. Everyone was there. There was a lifeguard. Uh, my dad apparently 
you know, resuscitated him or tried to resuscitate him. They took him to the hospital. They pulled him off life support, the whole shebang. Um, the next year, my grandmother was killed in a murder-suicide. My step-grandfather killed my grandmother and then shot himself after luring her back to the house uh, because she had already left him. I think it was the second alcoholic she had left. This one actually literally killed her. So she is actually a really strong figure in my life, sort of in the background, even though I didn't know her very well, um, as like really the Al-Anon, because she wasn't a drinker, but she was clearly drawn to alcoholics, including my father's father, who drank himself to death, uh, was literally found dead in a truck by a ditch um, near his trailer where he lived, because he had essentially drank himself into the position of living in a trailer. Um, my, so, this, so I'm four years old, three years old, my brother drowns, four years old, grandmother killed in murder-suicide, five years old, my mother gets breast cancer. And apparently, you know, this was the 80s, pretty harrowing, but, you know, she survived, you know, half mastectomy, radiation, all that. So pretty chaotic, I think, from a death and destruction standpoint, um, and definitely wired me for fear. But the the point that relates to our program is that I was told later in life by my aunt, uh, not really a blood aunt, but closer than a blood aunt, um, that she had come over after my brother had drowned and my mother was just sitting on the porch drinking wine, staring into space. And she had to yell at her, not yell at her, but be aggressive and she, you know, remind her that she had another child. And so through many years of outside help, it is very clear to me that I was probably quite abandoned emotionally at three years old, temporarily, but I think pivotally right after somebody who was in my life just disappeared. Um, and I don't think my parents could handle it and I don't blame them uh, because I don't know how anyone handles the death of a child. And I say a lot now that, um, you know, my mother reached into the tools that she had and she had one tool and it was alcoholism. Um, she was probably genetically predisposed to alcoholism. Her father was an alcoholic. Her mother was an alcoholic. Her father was one of 11 children. Her mother was one of 12 children. So Irish Catholic Massachusetts family. Um, I would say all of her sister's were, well, I don't know about most of them, in my opinion, were alcoholics. Um, many of my cousins, I would say, are alcoholics. One of my cousins literally drank herself to death, like died in a hospital and wouldn't tell anybody she was in the hospital to the last minute um, because no, no one, she didn't want anyone to come and save her. She was trying to kill herself with alcohol and she succeeded. Um, so anyway, so she reached into that toolbox and she grabbed alcoholism. And I have pieced together that she drank a lot in that period. I assume my father drank a lot in that period as well. He, his father was an alcoholic and um, my uncles, everyone was an alcoholic. Like there's no one on the tree <laughs> that I remember, except interestingly, like just thinking about it now, my grandmother, my father's mother, because I think she was really interestingly in Al-Anon. Um, so anyway, they drank and, you know, I have no real memory of that. I think they sort of brought it together as best they could. And I had this, you know, pretty typical, not pretty typical, I, from what I hear from a lot of Al-Anons, particularly in LA, where we have this kind of idyllic childhood in our minds, but also a pretty normal childhood on the outset, right? Like my parents were great parents when there wasn't a uh, Cub Scout den 
at my school. My mother founded one and was the leader of it. My father was a Boy Scout leader and went camping with me every month. Um, my dad specifically worked uh, a somewhat non-ambitious job, I thought, in my opinion. And when I asked him why, he was like, well, I come home at four o'clock every day and get to be with you guys. Like, I think they really genuinely wanted to have kids and were great parents. Um, and I have lots of fond memories. My childhood was wonderful and Christmases and gifts and trips and all kinds of things. I get sent to private schools. I got the best educations, etc. But there was a kind of inability to engage in a level of life and liveliness that I crave, craved and crave currently and I participate in currently, in my opinion. And um, I didn't know what that was, but it was missing. There was a kind of deadness in the house. And at a certain point, I would say alcoholism either got either worse or more, I was older, so it was more aware of it. But at a certain point, I was able to take care of myself, like babysit myself, and my parents became very social, um, very social drinkers, belonged to the Elks Lodge, uh, went out all the time. And we kind of developed, like we had a lot of love and a lot of connection, but there was also a weird kind of roommateness that developed where when I was in high school and I could drive, and I was also drinking very heavily in high school, and and, ar- and I'm arguably a drinker, like I definitely drink alcohol. Um, but I, you know, we were partied in high school. I went to this very privileged private high school and we worked really hard and I was crazy ambitious. And then we would party all weekend. And there were night, there were weekends where I would come home and they would be out and then I would go to bed and then I would leave. And then they, you know what I mean? Like we would just be ships passing for like day, a couple of days where they were out having a party. I was out having a party. We would never see each other. And I was 17 or whatever for what that's worth. And they were 40s. Um, But they were very social people. We had parties at our house all the time, all that. Um, So at a certain point, I left and went to school in in California and studied film and uh, left. Just really wanted liveliness and, and, and a bigger life. And my parents were very supportive financially, emotionally, and they could not go along on the ride. My my biggest way of describing my mother is that she wanted everything for me. She let me go. She did not, while there was some, some attachment stuff, you know, she let me go. She, she let me swim alone as like a 10 year old. Like she talked me to school or took me to the swim classes, taught me to swim, you know, supervised me and then let me, I mean, go swim by myself at the condo where we sometimes spent the summer. Um, I mean, that's pretty remarkable. I think for the level of, you know, fear and anxiety that my mother had, she always had a clip in her hand, which she called her worry clip. Um, I think she actually did a pretty good job of keeping it off me. Uh, now, even though there was still plenty that got through and, and even if it's not said it's felt and it's around, but man, she could have been so much more intense than she was. And so she really wanted to, to not, suffocate me. And I really appreciate that from her. And there are horrible things that I found out later, even just some things that were pretty intense that she kept from me that I felt a lot of gratitude for later. Um, so yeah, I grew up, I grew up in alcoholism. I, I thought it was pretty normal. My parents smoked and drank and partied my, I spent, you know, childhood, we, I would play at the bar, we would go to the bar. And I thought the old phone booth at the bar at the Brown Derby was like, 
the shit. Like I would open and close that xylophone door and hang out in there. And it was like a spaceship or my office or whatever game. I mean, nobody was there. There were no other kids. Like I didn't have brothers and sisters. So I was playing with myself um, or playing out in the backyard there or conversely playing with adults. So like I would play horseshoes with 50 year old alcoholics or they liked to play poker. So I learned to play poker at a very early age and I could sit down at the table and play poker with 50 year old alcoholics. Um, and you know, that was my childhood, but that was the, and then they sent me to these sort of privileged places where I met great friends and, and developed all these skills. And so I was, you know, my weekends were with friends and people came over to my house still. Um, I try, you know, anything I wanted, like, you know, the school trip to DC, of course you're going, you need, you want pant, you know what, you want nice slacks from Ralph Lauren, you can have that. Like I lived, I generated a lot of life and they were willing to support it, but they couldn't participate is I guess the best re-summation of that. Um, so, you know, my childhood was, was both ha full of stories, like them getting, you know, drunk and my dad punching a hole in the wall or, and my mom getting like mad that he did it and punching another hole in the wall to show him that she could do it too. And, you know, I definitely, every time the garage door would open, I would run to my room and hide out. So I didn't have to deal with them. Not in like a scared way, just like, ugh, this is such a drag, like to deal with this, um, stuff. And, you know, my, you know, coming home one night, you know, I got up to go to the bathroom and my mother had come home and she was like on the floor bleeding. She'd fallen and hit her head on a mirror. And my aunt, who's not my aunt, had, had dropped her off. And I like went outside and was like, you need to get back in here and deal with this. And that was kind of my MO with them. Like, this is fucking ridiculous. I'm not participating in this. <laughs> I remember stepping over her to go to the bathroom and then getting my aunt and being like, this is, you need to deal with this and going to bed. Like I did not ever clean up my mother's anything, my father's anything. Uh, if anything, I would, when I did engage, I would mock them. You know, I thought it was, I thought they were immature and I thought it was ridiculous. Even at like 12, I was like, this is ridiculous. Um, and so those are some good skills that I learned from that. But, um, you know, there also is kind of a detachment that isn't loving that I learned from that as well. Um, but I also, and, you know, I have learning more in this program, learning more shame, but I would say my childhood was really not that shameful around alcoholism. I'm just more specific to the question and then I'll wrap up because I don't know, like we partied at my house. All my friends came over. My parents came home drunk. We were drunk. We played Trivial Pursuit till two o'clock in the morning it, you know, I lived in the, probably the most, I would say like lower income house of anyone I knew. I went to school with like rich people, like secretary of the treasury is the grandfather kind of people owns Pennzoil, motor oil, you know, like that kind of people, so people with elevators in their houses. And I had this like three bedroom tract house in this other area. And they, all these people would come to my house and sleep over and my parents would let anything happen. Uh, not that we didn't do anything crazy and we were really responsible actually, but, um, I was like welcoming it. Like, yeah, this is, this is it. Everyone look. Uh, so I didn't really have like secrets and such. Um, and so like maybe some people experience, I didn't know till later, A, that that was weird, B, that that was alcoholism or C, that I wasn't Al-Anon or that maybe some things were not, even though there were good things that did not, it didn't, the, yes. And right. Like there were really amazing things. And there were these other things. And I get to look at the other things for what they are without negating the good things. 
And so I think growing up an alcoholic home was escaping from that and then trying to reconcile why I still had so much love and affection for it, for them. And now, you know, trying, I think I'm much better at understanding the, what it was like to grow up there. That's wonderful. That's, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. I think if I had any additional questions, you know, about, you said, I really related to, you talking about, you know, it's not something that you was really hiding and that you felt a lot of shame around. Um, also, gosh, just like so much, so much tragedy early, um, mm. you know, and did you always have such compassion, you know, as you were, I mean, just thinking about like, as you grew up and you know, when you were an adolescent and a teenager and then maybe even in your early 20s in college and things like that, you know, did you always have so much compassion for your parents under, you know, feeling like they did do the best they could? Was there a time just kind of still thinking back to the place of like, you know, before you came into the rooms, right? Like, was there a different perspective that you had? And then I kind of like want this to be a dual question, you know, because you said you didn't feel like you really had any secrets, but was it that there weren't any secrets regarding alcoholism or was it there were no <laughs> secrets at all? Right. You know, like were there other things that you felt like you couldn't share or couldn't talk about? It's just interesting. I think that like sometimes we focus on just the alcohol element when like for me as an Al-Anon, it's really more about the behavior and there's like, so like, that's just the tip of the iceberg is the alcohol, you know? So does that, yeah. I, I think those questions yeah, make yeah, sense, yeah. but ask me if they, anything, if they don't. Yeah. No, I took notes because it was a two-parter. I feel like I'm at the debates. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so to your first question about compassion, no. When I, before the rooms, I wanted my parents to be very different than they were. I nagged my mother constantly to dress differently, act differently. I wanted her to be like the other mothers. Um, I wanted her to socialize with the other mothers. I wanted her to dress like the other mothers. I wanted her to, um, you know, my mom like hung out in a nightgown all day, unless she was leaving the house to go somewhere. She lived in a nightgown. Like when I go to my partner's house now, his mother is dressed, you know, <laughs> showered and dressed all day, every day. Like, and the house is put together and, you know, there aren't piles of paper that have nowhere to go and never will. Like, and it's not like our house was bad or hoard or whatever. It's, it's just like that level of like, why bother was, was a part of it. And I still have that. Like I, I like to wear a t-shirt and like boxers around the house. I don't like being dressed up at home. It does seem like why bother? Um, so I had, you know, I had judgments around those things. I didn't really understand why I had such a deep affection for my mother and such guilt as well. And the guilt was around, you know, obviously not knowing that there was an option, but constantly kind of not showing up the way I would like to have shown up now, which is being, you know, accepting. No, I did not accept that they were drinking. I did not accept that she'd made these choices. I did not accept that they couldn't, you know, change any of their patterns or behavior, you know, they're very set in what they want to do and don't want to do, you know, it was very hard to get them to visit me in Los Angeles, for instance, or anything like that. So no, lots of resentment, 
uh, lots of guilt with my father, a lot of, um, I would say belittling and diminishment that he didn't achieve more that, um, you know, he wasn't, he didn't make an active effort to be more educated, to have more hobbies. Um, and yeah, I had a kind of reverse parentalism feeling about them sometimes. Like it was my job to bring life into the house. It was my job to expose us to things. Like, should we go to a play? We live in the fourth largest city in the United States with a world-renowned opera, ballet. Like, should we go to that stuff? Like, that's not something that would have come up in my home. And it's not like we were financially... There was no financial reason we couldn't participate in those things. So it really felt like my responsibility and I had a lot of resentment about it being my responsibility and the fact that it wasn't, nobody asked, right? And nobody wanted it, right? So I was trying to get people to do things they didn't even want. They don't like going to the theater. I'm just using that as an example. There's a million examples, but like I would be resentful that we didn't go to to do cultural things. They hate museums and, and ballets and they don't like doing that stuff, Right. Um, and then probably, you know, my dad loves to share with me the most when he's been drinking. Like my dad would love for me to go to the bar and sit there and talk to him all night and have drinks with him. And I'm not available for that. So we're like at an impasse of these two things. So no, I learned compassion in the rooms of Al-Anon. I learned that they did the best they could. I learned, um, such gratitude. Like my mom told me this thing. Uh, sorry, my mom had told me one thing my whole life about something major. And my dad admitted something to me recently um, that I didn't, which was the opposite. And I, my first reaction was gratitude that she hadn't told me because she was afraid it would affect my feelings for my father growing up. Like my first reaction to them now is gratitude. My father's drinking doesn't bother me at all. I don't even think about it. I don't, I try not to answer on Friday night or Saturday night or whatever. Like I know when not to answer the phone and he's not even like really drunk, drunk. Like he's, he's drunk, but like, it's not like incoherent. It's just like, I know that tone, that click of the tone where it's like, we're a little bit softer. We're a little bit more emotional. We want to talk about things we don't normally talk about. And I resent that they only get to come out at this time or, or I had resentment for it, but now I just don't participate in that. So I don't have to have any resentments about it. Um, so I learned all my compassion here, even more than any outside help it, here being Al-Anon. And as far as secrets, you know, we had secrets, I'm sure. I mean, I'm just talking to you about one that I can't, I'm not going to share in case no one ever listens. But, um, you know, I think there were definitely secrets. And I don't know the extent of what went on between them uh, and what was and wasn't secret. Um, it's a good question. I hadn't really thought about it. Um, I don't know that we had, we were very, I, the only reason I would say that, that is confusing because we were just so open about everything and we used sarcasm to make our thoughts known. So there was really nothing that wasn't said, even if shittily or sarcastically. Um, but I'm sure there's lots, you know, I'm sure there's lots that I'll unpack. Okay. I'll take that answer. <laughs> Is that good enough for you, Claire? I guess. I mean, I guess I was, what you know, like, you, you, everybody was really open about 
you know, your brother's death and all, all of those things that was just all out well, there. We didn't really talk about it though, actually. I mean, they said that it, what it was. Yeah. But you know, the stories are like slightly different than the reality. Yeah. So I mean, some of those things relate to what I'm talking about. And it's, I hate to talk around this, but I just, you know, I don't feel like that's a podcast conversation, but um, I do think it's, that, um, yeah. I do think that we talked, but th- my dad never spoke about it. Like my mother could not engage him in discussions. Like not, not never. They talked about it. They went to like one or two grief survivor meetings. They donated his organs and we, I remember we went to this fundraiser for, or not fundraiser, like this, this gala to honor them and all these families who had given eyes and kidneys or whatever. And mm-hmm. I think maybe even met people that benefited from it. I don't know. Like they had, you know, they were, did that. My dad said he went to one or two Alan meetings in his life, um, but didn't whatever, I think it was for him. And, um, you know, so what were we talking about? Secrets? Yeah. 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 I mean, well, it's well, interesting. Uh, the, mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what they, Oh, sorry. He didn't talk about my brother's death. That's what I was talking about. Sorry. I got lost. Um, but then they wouldn't talk about it. Like, so she had no, as my therapist would say, like, didn't have like a partner mm-hmm. to talk about her feelings with. My dad's not mm-hmm. available for a lot of discussion, if hardly any about feelings. And if you start to tell him things that go in that realm, he's not, unknown to just say he needs to go to the bathroom and hang up the phone or feed the cat or something like literally the other day my uncle just died of covid this last week and we just started to chat about it a little bit and he's like well i gotta feed the cats i was like okay and i don't resent it because i know you know i'm like okay that's not where i don't go to the hardware store for milk anymore um so i don't know what wasn't discussed and therefore what was secret like is it a secret because he would never talk. I don't know. Like he just wouldn't talk about it. So maybe there were things that didn't intend to be secrets, but were, because what are you going to go, go talk to somebody who doesn't want to talk about it? Like my sexuality. I mean, I was queer growing up, you know, things like that, mm. but, um, I'm not a queer anymore. I'm recovered. No, I, I'm still queer. Um, but, uh, <laughs> I was queer growing up. Luckily I grew up. With um, so, you know, those were secret. Yeah, there was stuff around that you didn't want to talk about. But we didn't talk about anything. So was it a secret or you just didn't talk about it? I don't know the answer to that question. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's to my point really is like, you know, um, there's so there's like, you know, we're only sick as your secrets. And I think so much of a like through line of relatability in the rooms can be uh, – having to keep the, like walking on eggshells, you know, or having Mm -hmm. to be in this place of not getting to just share openly and process things with other people. And whether that is, you know, the, the, the death that no one wants to talk about or the fact that people are drinking, you know? So I think that's just, um, yeah, I think you answered it, even though it didn't seem like you answered it for, for me. <laughs> I, I feel good about what came okay. out of that question. Okay. Um, you know, I would love to hear just moving forward, you know, into and it can be compressed just in, for the sake of time. But like then, you know, leaving leaving your family of origin, going in, you know, going to school, like functioning in the world, coming from the environment that you came from, 
you know, tools or, or not weapons or whatever you were using at the time to, to, to function. And then like into, into your twenties, you know, like what, like just really that space 20. between into that space between, you know, leaving home and then like, when did program start? Like that chunk, that nugget of joy. <laughs> <laughs> so most of your life since you just started program a couple of weeks ago, but yeah, so I moved to LA and I, well, I think it's, it's really hard and it's, it's sort of what I'm looking at now. So it's interesting. It's really hard to separate my, my number one tool is ambition. I think at the end of the day, like that's what I learned. Ambition would save me. Um, you, I knew somehow you could make anything happen in life. And I believe that to be true. Um, or, you know, within reason. Um, and I think I just knew that I could build a life for myself and leave that house and do whatever I wanted. And I did it even in high school. Like I was, a, I auditioned for the play my freshman year and got a lead part. Like I, then I was like, I want to do more theater. So I went and teched. And then I'm like, what are these dancers doing? Like dance looks cool. Like literally I'd never danced. And then I was like, I think I could do that. And then I went to school over the summer, like intensively, and then, you know, went to school and then went to class the next year and then went to school over summer intensively and made the comp one of the first companies the first year. And then by my senior year, I was the old, the first man that was ever in the advanced company. We had this like, we had three dance teachers and two dance studios in a school of 500 people. It's crazy. Um, you Not know, those to interrupt are the you, of, but would you say you're a type A? Uh, yes. If you believed um, in the types? <laughs> yes. Type, there's not enough A in that type A to describe me. Um <laughs> We need more A. We need like A alpha. <laughs> it's negative A. It's like back to Z. Like, is that like more cowbell? Is that like? No, I mean, we, I tell we, need more a. A. We, need we need more A. We need more cowbell. We need, we need Z. I'm type Z. I tell the story all the time. My freshman year in high, high school, I didn't test into geometry. I tested into algebra one honors. And my friends tested into geometry. So that summer I went to Rice University in Houston, Texas. And spent six, eight weeks, just intent, like eight hours a day. You could take the entire school year in eight weeks at the, at a university. So I took all of geometry in one summer so that I could get into Algebra 2 Honors and catch up with everybody. And I didn't do well in Algebra 2 Honors. I got a C. And it's probably because I'm not good at math. And also, I don't like math. I hate math. I had to take calculus before I graduated high school because as everyone knows... If there's one thing you do in college, it's calculus. Oh, yeah, every day. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that, that story is specific, but it is a nutshell of my neuroses. Ambition that can be positive, but is often weaponized and constrictive. And yes, externally, outwardly, on paper, resume -y, looks good but comes at a cost. And so I would say that of my childhood, like that would be a, the thing I learned the most along with many other things and B to sum up your original question, how I spent my twenties. Um, pretty much. Pretty <laughs> to much sum up your original question, how I spent my twenties. <laughs> achieving things. I went into a profession that 
is uh did we talk about professions are we keeping this all anonymous i forget how we're handling ourselves it's up to you i mean um, i think i went into a profession know. in the industry the only reason i say is like i was i was in publicity and the reason i say that's because i worked with celebrities and films and whatnot and the only reason i say that is because our whole job the reason you're good at that job is you anticipate what somebody wants before they want it you deliver it to them and you handle fucking everything like i actually represented and dealt with alcoholics and drug addicts and cleaned up their messes and you know dealt with the worst behaviors i've ever experienced from any human being on the planet from some very prominent people that everyone would know and cleaned I that can't all help but, i can't help but point out that like you wouldn't help your mother you walked over your mother <laughs> but, but then but you I went sure to profession <laughs> Just throwing, I mean, and, and there were accolades, right? There, the, uh, there was a, a very specific, uh, power dynamic that came from that because you were actually the person who told the most famous people in the world where to go and what to do at all times. Like they were literally helpless without you. And as I go back and audit that profession and the people I met, I, I know some people, but like, I cannot even imagine the amount of Al-Anons that must be attracted to dealing with these difficult people because we're so well-trained to do it. And of course, almost everyone that I worked with was either an addict or an Al-Anon. I mean, let's be honest, like on some level and some of them I've seen in the rooms anyway, but I, you know, I, I got very far in that profession, a lot of accolades, blah, 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 quit because I had achieved, you know, in theory, everything I was going to achieve in that profession. I get really bored if I, if I've achieved too much, and then left and went to work for a magazine for a few years and then couldn't get, you know, couldn't get ahead as fast as I wanted to manipulate, managed, and controlled the situations, you know, literally shitty things like people's employment and, and undermining people. And I knew best and, and consistently got rewarded for the most part for all that behavior, um, both outwardly and inwardly, except emotionally, interpersonally, but those weren't important. And then, um, you know, started companies, became an entrepreneur because I couldn't, at 28, I couldn't deal with working for anybody. I couldn't handle it. It wasn't, it wasn't fast enough. It wasn't, uh, I remember when I was 23, I had a boss or no, 22, I had a boss and she was like the head of the whole department of this massive firm I worked for. And she was like, you're, I'm going to try to slow you down because you're going to burn out. And I was like, fuck you, I'm out of here. Like I quit within a month. I was like, there's no way I'm going to sit here and let you tell me to slow down. It was probably the worst thing she could have said to me. Um, and if I had known a way to undermine her on my way out, I probably would have done it. I did not have great behavior all the time. That being said, I had great friends and, you know, was full of love and life. But I think when it came to ambition and all of that, my worst Alanonisms could come out and they were I mean, I can't say this enough. They were always rewarded in the external world. So many of our Alanonic traits are so rewarded. I I don't miss anything. Like, I don't, I don't let balls drop. And I don't, um, I kind of know what people want a little bit. Like, I'm not a psychic, but I have a good read on the situation usually. And kind of know what you need to do. I, 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 I think that's an Illinois trait, but also like a true trait that I love about myself. If I see if we're at X and I want to get to Y, I know what you have to do to get there. I can tell you, I can figure it out. I can figure it out. And I don't necessarily need to, as I've learned in this program, 
But if we had a problem and you wanted to sit down, I could make it happen. I could make almost anything happen. And I love that, actually. That's something I've learned to embrace about myself. Because when applied in alignment with my ideals and my true self, I can achieve my dreams. But it can also run rampant because I feel like I can make things happen and therefore I should. And I would say my 20s was a lot of like, because I can, I did. And getting more and more external validation, more and more. um, And then, and actually, and then constantly walking away from it. I have so many opportunities. Like I've had four careers and I'll get to the top of this career. It's so interesting about me. Um, And then I'll leave and I'll be like, I've done it. I'm next. And I think that is my true soul's telling me that I don't actually want those things and then getting wrapped up in the cycle potentially of the ways in which it does feed another part of me. And also we have to make money right in our world. So, you know, if I'm going to do something, I kind of do it all the way, but I, and then I typically walk away. Um, And if I don't walk away, I've had a couple instances when it has been pulled away from me very powerfully by my higher power. But yeah, I mean, I was successful in that world. I met somebody who I fell in love with, who I ended up marrying very, very briefly at the end, but was with for 10 years. And tell us more about that was, you know, wounded, potentially the broken wing syndrome, which isn't in our isn't in our literature, but, you know, couldn't operate very was afraid to and unable and in his in his opinion not even my opinion unable to operate in the external world and i could do it and so i did it and it felt good and we had a like a very intense bond that i later learned was quite codependent but didn't know um but was beautiful and wonderful and and got me through a series of other things in my life uh i had a chronic illness my whole life that eventually led to massive surgery that was life-changing uh, my mother finally died six years ago of cancer. Um, and right before all of that happened, I had um, started going to meetings. My friend, who's my closest friend in the program and in, and in life in many ways, um, had said, you know, do you want to try this thing? Like I grew up in an alcoholic home too. Let's go. So we went. We went to the Saturday meeting. It's huge. It's like 150 people. There's celebrities in the room. It's very intimidating. And, you know, listened a lot. Spoke occasionally, mostly listened. Felt like it was kind of clicky and high schoolish. And like people only called on their friends and, you know, definitely didn't follow the advice and try six different meetings um, before deciding. But I kept going back here and there. But just, I would call, I called it my auditing the program. I audited it. Just like kind of showed up took what I could, got some relief. Then my life fell apart, got divorced, had the surgery, mom died. And there was nothing left in the way or nothing else to hold me up. And here was Al-Anon. And so I was like, all right, let's get serious. But I started going because literally I was living alone for the first time in 12 years. I didn't have anywhere else to go. I mean, I had friends and stuff, but like when you're having, I don't know if anyone out there has ever recovered from codependency, but I can only imagine that it's what recovering from addiction feels like. Like I can't even fathom describing how painful and isolating and panic attacks and 
just mental illness, really depression, serious depression, first ever thoughts of, you know, not suicide, but definitely like no one would care. Like if it, if I was gone, it wouldn't, everyone, it would take like a couple months, but everyone would be fine. You know, and once, you know, I think you told me once, like once you have those thoughts, it's hard to unthink them, but I don't think I've ever done anything more painful than recovering from codependency. And, and I did it through this program. So I went to three, four meetings a week. Um, I got a sponsor I started getting service commitments and these are like the things people say, but like, it was huge um, for me. And that was my social life. I, I lived alone. I was dating. I was finding that challenging. I shouldn't have been dating probably, but everyone has their journey. I did not take like a hot sack. I needed to keep going. You know, I had to work it out <laughs> in my own way, but you know, Saturday morning you get up, you go to the meeting, you go and have coffee with people afterwards. This could be four hours of your day. Sunday morning, get up, go to the meeting, and you got Wednesday night, you got Thursday afternoon, and you know, suddenly you're going, you add the the hanging out with people for coffee, and then hour a week I spend with my sponsor. Suddenly we're talking six, seven, eight hours a week of Al-Anon. And I'm working full time. And that kind of became my life. And yeah, I had friends and we did stuff, but like my community, when I found the opposite of the codependency I had in a romantic relationship was the community I found in Al-Anon. Um and to this day, I would say it's the most I've ever experienced of community. Um, it's a little challenging with Zoom, and I miss it. But um, yeah, I came to the rooms. That's how I came to the rooms. I, I feel like you touched on it a little bit, but um, I'd love to hear about, like, you know, why did you keep coming back? You know, was it, did you have smart feet? Were you, you know, I was like, I would love to hear, you know, a little bit, you touched on a little bit, but a little bit more about what, it, what exactly kept you coming back. You know, some people say I had smart feet, you know, for me, right? Like I, a duck to water doesn't even describe the, um, <laughs> poster child attitude that I had towards the program. I was just like, give me more, give me more, want more. Um, and I have reasons why that was so, you know, so I would just love to hear. And did you, you know, some people come in and they're like, oh, I hated it. I, you know, or like I cried through all the, you know, what was it? I would love to hear like a little bit of your progression, like expanded progression of what it was like when you started in the rooms to like your growth of recovery and then like where you're at now with program. Yeah. Um, first of all, I think this FaceTime is going to die. So FYI, I have to either get a cord or um, charge my phone. Or else we're just going to not talk, not see each other anymore. Claire and I FaceTime for those at home while we're doing this so we can see each other. Um, okay, so I went to the rooms because it felt good. And I felt like, well, I should say also... The only thing that I had found to deal with my chronic illness was yoga, meditation, and general spirituality. So I've always been a spiritual seeker on some level. Um, so at this point, I'm doing yoga several times a week um, and meditating, not as much as I'd like, but meditating and like reading Krishnamurti and all these outside teachers, Osho, et cetera, and like finding a lot, a lot in there and going to therapy every week for 12 years. So I was like interested in, in self development, which might've, might've looked like self-improvement and probably had the goal then of 
getting better or what have you. Um, so I was already wired to be that kind of person, I think. Uh, and then I went and I found it to be very complimentary to all the other things that I was doing and kind of added it to the spices for a few years. Um, why did I go back during, after my kind of life changed? I literally could not get through a day. Like I was definitely one of those people. I wasn't crying all the time because I was not aware of my emotions, but, um, and I certainly wasn't going to deal with them, but, um, I, I don't know what I would have done. I mean, the gaping awe of empty, nothing vacuumness that would suck me into oblivion that was for me overcoming codependency. I mean, literally without program, I don't know what I would have done. I mean, I'm, I don't know. I don't know that it would have been dramatic. I probably would have taken medication or something. Um, and I'm not against medication because I currently take medication and complimentary, but um, I don't know what I would have done, but I couldn't, I couldn't not go. I mean, I don't even know the level of pain was so intense. Um, I had never been alone ever. And I, I was trying to, I was trying to do it. I mean, my soul had journeyed me there. I specifically left my relationship to do this work. I know that I know it consciously, knew it consciously. I didn't know what it would feel like, uh, but it was, I mean, the most, I, I would say even more than surgery. I mean, like the most painful thing that I've ever experienced, at least in a long-term period. Like I think losing my mother was the most acute pain I've ever felt, but there was no, I don't, I don't even know what else there was to do. Like what, how else do you deal with it? It just, it was so obviously the only thing that made me feel better. So I kept going. Yeah, we say, you know, you come to the rooms or you go to a meeting to feel better. You work the steps to get better, right? Yeah. I think that that's a big... And then I started working the steps I mean, and for I me, started to notice. Yeah, I, did, I really relate to just, you know, it felt good to be in a meeting, be around people that mm-hmm. I wasn't alone in, in that way. It's a very specific way. Um, so, I mean, it doesn't feel... Yeah. It doesn't feel the codependency gap because what I love about Alan on now, but like, they're not taking you in. Right. Like, in fact, it's interesting later talking to AA people, when you go to AA, you know, they really go after you and try to help you. And Alanon's like, I feel like is they're loving, but they're also like, we're here when you want us. Like there's a little hands offness to it. Um, it was very clear that, you know, it's not like anyone tried to save me and you couldn't ask anyone to come save you. I think the guest last week described it so well. Like, I want you to peel off the top of my head, crawl inside my brain, feel exactly what I feel. Um, tell me what that feels like. Make me normalize it for me. Make sure it's okay. And and then I will be okay if you can feel what I feel and tell me it's okay. And only you can do that. That to me is what codependency is like. And this isn't a code meeting, but like to me, I would say the most intense part of Alanonism was the codependency that came out of it because I wasn't okay. I wasn't, it, things were not okay. And we were pretending they were okay. And I couldn't latch to my parents in the exact healthy way. So I would, I externalize it to any people, place, thing I could find work, school, um, a lot of work in school. 
and eventually people, it wasn't relationships in the beginning, but like, that's my addiction. It's not really alcohol or sex or whatever, but I can put anything in the slot, you know, the God shaped hole we describe and, and try to fill it with that. They don't work anymore. You know, my brain still tries to do it all the time. It doesn't work, but yeah, the moment you realize, I mean, that's the, the breakthrough of Alan, like the moment you realize that none of it's going to work ever and this thing is going to work, or at least they're telling you it's going to work and you have to kind of believe that you're not special anymore and or you need believing anymore that you're special and that if it worked for these people, it's probably going to work for you. I mean, I just, there was no one else holding a map for me. And there's literally a map, like there's a, like a list of what to do and not do. There's a checklist for maturity. There's a list of how to be an adult. It's written on a piece of paper that someone can hand you. I just, I don't know of anything that's like that. <laughs> I certainly wasn't taught that. And I mean, it's really fucking simple. It's hard. I think I did not find it easy to change gears into this gear um, and, you know, not to belabor the metaphor from last week, but like I fall out of gear all the time, like on the hour. And that's what program is right. To get it back in gear. Um, you know, it's never fixed, but I don't know of any other maps out there. I mean, I guess if you truly believe deeply in your religion, like my uncle just died and they had a very calm approach to describing it. And it's because they were super Catholic. He called in his priest. He did his last rites. Um, he did his confession and all that. And he's like, I'm ready. I'm 85, ready to go. And it was really peaceful and really consoling to me that they were consoled. But I don't have that. Like, I don't, to me, that's not Catholicism isn't the thing for me. This works for me. Yeah, I mean, I think that the drastic difference between, you know, us being a spiritual program is that we get to choose what our higher i mean like that's just the thing right there that's, that's the, the, that's the thing that's different um i mean there's so much that's different but i think it was that I, and there's no proselytizing no event there i mean uh attraction not promotion like the moment yeah. that all my friends got into est or you know whatever scientology or whatever and there was the, they were constantly calling me and having one, like, there's none of that. And I think the moment that happens is the moment I'm out. Like, if you feel like you need to get me in for it to be working for you, I don't know. That doesn't work for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, fuck the more I think about, it. I mean, like literally there's so many things that make Alamon what Alamon is that are so different than any, it's just, to me, it isn't. It's my spiritual practice. I would never refer to it as a religion. I do practice it religiously. That's uh, it's, <laughs> that's the paradigm. But um, so yeah, it felt good. It was it you know was doing these things for you, and then you know you started working it. So you know with a with what time we have left, I would love to hear about what it was. What if there was a shift in your life experiences? If you can be like, oh, you know what? It was like around here that I actually felt this, not necessarily like your 
first spiritual awakening or anything, but just like a reflection of like, it really got easier because I was doing these things. The more I was doing that practice or, you know, maybe it didn't, mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, and then like what, it, what is like today, like how is your life different today? You know, because of, because you fucking keep coming, you do keep coming back. So <laughs> I mean, we're literally doing a podcast about it. That's not much. I can't like it, stop. Can't get enough. Don't stop taking. Um, um, spiritual moments. Okay, so you know, got a sponsor. They are great. They're a great sponsor. Highly recommend them. Um, but I won't say who they are um, because I need all their time. Got a sponsee too early on. Shared in a meeting. Sponsee grabbed me, or rather approached me for outreach and wanted a sponsor and I sponsored or someone was my sponsee for a while. Um, haven't gotten one since then. Assume that means something's wrong with me. Um, and it's funny that sponsee fired me or was like, I need to be with someone who has more recovery or my therapist. Actually my therapist said we need to be with someone with more recovery. And I was like, okay. And I had no resentment about it. And then later heard from one of their family members that they left the program. And I felt really sad about that. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, just, like I said, got involved in the community, felt like more and more like these people were my tribe. And then, um, you know, I was moving a lot or things were changing very rapidly. Locations were changing a couple instances because I was on, I felt each step for me was like a video game. And at the end of the video game, there was a dragon or like a boss and it was pretty clear that that step was over <laughs> or time to be faced or whatever. And like something big would happen and there would be a big spiritual recovery, especially the first three steps. Um, and so I remember, uh, you know, for step two in particular, you know, coming to believe the power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity um, was right around the time that I was going to move apartments. Now I have lived in the same townhouse for 19 years 18 years and i had lived there with all my partners and peoples and whatever and kept it when i moved and had another house somewhere else and so i had two locations but i was moving back to this apartment in la and i was going to live in la or was living in la but i didn't need it anymore and i used to be terrified of losing the apartment i would actually have dreams that i would lose it um because it is a rent controlled townhouse in the museum district i mean it was fucking great um and there was a one bedroom opening up next door and I was like, you know what? I, I don't need a two bedroom and I would like some new memories, but I'm also clearly not up for moving anywhere else, but the same damn building I'm in, but also how lovely, like how gentle for me, like that was so hard for me to give up. And I was moving next door and that's okay because that's what I needed to do. And it wasn't dramatic, but I could literally, anyway. So the landlord was like, oh, the parking space doesn't come with that unit. And I was like, well, I fly every week for two or three days a week. And uh, I, I can't, I have to park my car. So that's the answer. Thank you. know, This is the phase where I'm like, okay, that's what HP said. Then the landlord comes up to me. He's like, you never got back to the apartment. I'm like, I told you that I can't do it. And he's like, well, I would consider it. And I was like, okay. And then I said, you know, this is my like height of recovery beginnings. And I was like, could you leave the apartment open for me for the weekend? So I could think about it. Easy does it. Right. And also uh, pause you know, and I'm starting to learn all these things. And uh, he left the apartment open. I brought my friends up, all my friends and my boyfriend at the time. I went at night. I went in the morning. I went during the day. I stood in different rooms debating, you know, like I get to take my time. I get to think about things 
before I make decisions. Still couldn't quite, you know, wasn't sure. Finally, the last night I went and I sat in the fireplace, which isn't a fireplace, a foot. Well, maybe it was once a fireplace and meditated. And I was like, okay, you know, like, tell me what to do here. And I just started weeping. And I was like, I'm t- I was just, I started audibly, either audibly or in my head talking to God and being like, I'm scared to go, man. I'm just, I, I'm so scared. I'm scared to leave. And he's like, I'm like, I, or I'm scared not to stay or something like that. And I could hear audibly this sense of like, that's not what we're doing anymore. That we're not doing that anymore. It's time to go. And I was like, I made the decision based on that spiritual feeling, but also let's be honest, you know, careful processing and people's opinions. I did all the work made the decision, moved, never thought about that apartment again. Like literally, like never dreamed about it. Never was like, I don't, I mean, I looked at it when I walked by it, it meant nothing to me because I had done it through this, what I consider this practice, this program, I'd done it that way. Um, And to me, I was like, okay, we can apply this to everything. Uh, I'm not always great at it and my own stuff comes back. But if, but essentially whether the road is straight in two days, like that one was a pretty clear, I was deep in the program. And I know there are people that I love who really are able to do that all the time. Sometimes it's windy and there's a lot of white knuckling and letting go and grabbing it back and letting go and grabbing it back. And it's a longer process. Um, But it's much, much easier now. And I, I moved, I don't know, six times this year. I mean, I just moved into this house on Friday. I'm living in Portland now. Like, it's all very easy to let go of because I'm going with that process. So I would say that was probably when I got the first evidence, Oh, it works. Like it, I mean the really clear evidence, not the esoteric hang in there, you know, keep coming back. And not that that's, you know, but until you get that first real like receipt (laughs) for purchase and you're like, Oh shit, this is, this is for real. Like this works. And I don't even, at that point, I don't even care if there is a God, like, I'm working on stuff too. I'm trying to get, but whether there is or not, whether I was speaking to myself in that moment, and I still don't hundred percent know, never will. It doesn't matter. And I was like, Oh, right. It just, and that's where it sort of, it works. If you work it, I'm like, you just follow the steps and do it. And that's where I kind of got like hooked. And now I try to repeat that as much as possible with all in all my affairs. It's beautiful. I love that story. I love hearing that story. It's one of my favorite stories of yours, program related. Mm. Um, Cause I'm only here to hear recovery. So no, I'm just kidding. I, all of, all of it helps, you know, hearing the, I think that's what's so beautiful about our, so interesting to think that sharing, it's kind of boring, right? We do the same thing over and over and over again. We just go to rooms mm-hmm. and share different versions of the same story over and over again. But it's something about our healing that it's needed. I mean, for me, I need I need to be reminded because my disease so quickly overwrites what's true. And so I'm like, oh, I need to be reminded of the truth. I need to be reminded of the truth. I need to be reminded of the truth. Um. And I think the sooner I, uh, like the lately, not late, well, I said last several years, you know, it's just, that's how it's going to be. I know everyone says that, but I think, I don't know. I at least was still holding out hope that it was just going to be pretty set in drive for 
forever with some minor hiccups. And it's surprising, you know, every couple of years, every year, every six months, whatever it is, you're like, oh shit, like shit got real again. Like I got to go back to the basics again. Like something new came up, some different way. Now it's coming up for work. Like my relationship is beautiful. I love my partner. We get along great. It's all the things I chose. It's literally the list I made of things I wanted in a partner. I'm living with it. You know, no longer running around whining, complaining about my relationships anymore. But guess what? Now it's time to look at work. Work was always great. Never had an issue with it. Work is still arguably on paper great. But now I get to look at all the feelings I have around it. And it came because my relationships are sorted. I no longer struggle with housing, like concerns about where I live or don't live and moving around like that got removed. My parents in many ways are removed. Like it's all removed. Even the last company I was in is removed. And so now it's time to look at this. And it's every single time I'm like, oh, right. It's still hard. And I have a map to navigate it. You know, I think that that brings me to like my closing question for this. I think we've just got to do maybe more. I was thinking we got to do more one-on-ones as, you know, every whatever, 20 episodes. We can. Yeah. um, So we do want everyone to hear our opinion. (laughs) Oh, geez. Geez, Louise. Geez, Louise. There's just... What what greater uh, opportunity to like really just like pull apart, pull apart, pull apart, you know, yeah. the nuance of the program. It's like it's like that's why we have a sponsor race, because we go to the one. It is there is the we, which is the fellows and all the things, you know, but it's like without, I think, one person that like gets to keep track of all the shit sort. I mean, it's not their job to keep track, but, uh, you know. It's like, hey, I told you this thing. You know, they're like, you said that thing like 10 times. And I know because you're always coming to me. So, like, let's let's look at that pattern. Um, and, you know, <laughs> that's what that's what sponsorship is about. Um, sponsorship, what it's all about. Anyways, but my last question is. Um, Our sponsor is sponsorship. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> No, it was you were trying to say the thing like right, like share from your own experience or or read what's like. No, it's like like yeah, it's like instead of me undies or whatever else that oh. the pods are. It's not too bad. Me undies or like Roman or something. Our, it's like our sponsorship is sponsorship. <laughs> then we just read the sponsorship pamphlet. <laughs> we, could. Oh, we, should, we should cut a commercial for sponsorship and make that our commercial. I love it. I love it. Let's do this. Is that's great. We're doing it. Um, okay. My final question though is <laughs> some people <laughs> I've heard in the rooms and through f- fellows and sponsors and things that, um, you know, we are here to learn and grow. What are your closing thoughts on that concept is that a belief you have you know because in everything that you were saying was like and then six months later life happens you know like i get it i get everything pretty much together but then life happens and i gotta i gotta look use everything in program it's not like oh i i only i did all 12 steps so now i only have to do step 12 like nope gotta fucking go back shoot some ladders just right back down to step one you know um, like why, what would the purpose of that be? For me, it's that I understand this, the simple concept of I'm here to learn to grow just 
helps me be excited actually to have those mm-hmm. new opportunities. So I just wonder mm-hmm. what your thoughts are on learning and growing. Yeah, well, I learned that from you and I apply that to my life all the time. I mean, the quicker I get to that, the happier I am. Um, I was having a really rough week with all the travel and, you know, my uncle died and stuff. And we got to this house we rented and I couldn't remember that we had rented a one bathroom house and that we were sleeping upstairs and I go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. Um, and that really wakes me up and I have trouble going back to sleep. And I couldn't believe that I got in the situation. I couldn't remember what conversations were had and all that. And it was part of a lot of other stressors, but just as an example that I do approach as learning growing, I was like, okay, I just needed to eat. I needed to rest. I needed to be alone. Frankly, I spent like a night by myself because I love my partner, but we have been together 24 hours a day for six weeks. And I can't feel everything I need to feel and think everything I need to think when I'm not alone. So did that like, it was only a couple of hours and I was like, okay, I came out to him like, here's the opportunity. I do too much eating at night. Like I compl- I'm like, I go into bed and I'm like, I want to eat some more. It's been, a, it's been sort of a COVID thing, like to kind of up that pleasure. And then I have to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. So, you know, maybe this is an opportunity for me to like readdress that compulsive eating um, that I'm doing. And then I wanted to use the restroom as much. And then I wouldn't be such a big deal if I sleep upstairs from a bathroom. And that's the opportunity. And I decided it was the opportunity. And I've already slightly failed at this endeavor, I should tell you. But <laughs> it doesn't mean it wasn't the opportunity. And even if I never did it, it doesn't mean it wasn't the opportunity that was offered to me. And I think to learn and grow is definitely what I'm here to do. And what I love about my partner now is that we speak that language. And he's not in the program, but we speak that language together. And He's, he's very quick to get to what's the opportunity. I'm very quick to get to what's the opportunity. And then I'm just hopefully observing life, um, participating in life, but also watching it with a little loving detachment, riding the wave and God, I hope having fun. I mean, that's really my goal. Now I really like to enjoy myself immensely. I was working on my business today. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm starting a new business. We're doing the, like, we just got the money. We just got the this and the that. And I'm just like, I'm just like, got to get the website and got to get that. And I was sitting there for a moment. I was like going through all the list of things I had to do. And some of them I find very taxing, like technical IT stuff. And, you know, when it's, when I've started companies, when you're starting them out, you do the stuff, you do all the stuff, you, you figure out the website. And I was like, oh, but I actually, I'm having fun. Like I had to stop and be like, this is fun for me. This part is what I enjoy. I can turn it into stress. I can turn it into tasks. I can turn it into failed tasks or incomplete tasks. I can stress about this or the other, but like at the end of the day, I'm doing this because I enjoy this. And if I don't stop now and have fun with it, I never, what's the point. And so to learn and grow and to have fun as much as possible would be my goals. And yeah, the only way I've learned how to do that is through this program. Ah, uh, what a beautiful way to close this episode, Corey. I know I'm so good, aren't I? You are so good. <laughs> you are so good. I'll I be the first like one. To I'll be the first there. one to tell people. But I ran for phone list at this at a meeting, <laughs> and there were two of us, and I did not get elected to the phone list. I lost my phone list, and I was like genuinely like. Okay, yeah, um, I'm assuming everyone in that room doesn't hate me. <laughs> Corey 
texted me. You texted unlikely. me. It. I was dying. I think everyone hates me in that room because I, I lost the phone. List. I like almost want to reference your text right now to read it. And I was like taking a shit or something when I was reading it. And just to say like, or maybe I was drinking coffee beforehand. I don't know. Anyways, but my point is I was doing such a mundane thing that I do. And I just like burst into laughter. I was just like, oh my God, of course. It was so funny because gosh, isn't that who we are though? We're so human and like, I just was mm-hmm. like, and I was like, I didn't. I, I turned the camera on, which I'd look to see all the blue hands and see who voted against me. <laughs> those people hate me. <laughs> oh and this is God. the shit that goes through my brain. If I don't do this program all the time, I'll go crazy. Literally, though. Literally, though. I think I did not warrant. I, I felt it didn't warrant a response. I didn't respond. I, to that. Did I, respond. I did it. I literally did it. I was just like which was which was a response that i knew you would feel i was i was literally just like i I was like as you know as a joke but also just to like say it out to get it out of my head i'm like yeah i mean totally you know maybe people don't don't like me i'm not likable i mean Um, some people don't let's be honest no let's be honest they yeah some people Um, don't like me which is crazy it's really a personal feeling on their part that's what I'm saying. My mom yeah, told me I mean, if, if they don't if like they don't me, like they're missing the out. Rejection yeah, stuff. There's something wrong with that. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, anyway, this thank you so fun. much for being so available and um, vulnerable and open to share all of your experience, strength, and hope with us today. And um, gosh, who's up next week? I don't know, but but it's going to be great. It's not actually oh, next week we say crazy. that, but like in two weeks, whenever the next drop is. Yeah. Um, it's going to be killer. If you don't follow back up and, and listen to that episode, you're missing out on probably the key to your entire recovery. I just want to like, I don't want to be hyperbolic, but you probably won't recover if you don't listen to the next episode. Wow. Wow. But I want to keep it, you know, keep it simple. No manipulation in that. That felt a little just trying to identify the the things so um (laughs) Corey, i think you should keep coming back and (laughs) i'm trying to have fun we'll we'll catch you all on the next one thanks for listening everybody thank you and uh keep coming back it It does work work it you work it and you're worth it you're worth it i'm worth it we're all worth it. All right, guys. Oh my God. Have a great night or day or wherever you're listening. <laughs> or if you're up in the middle of the night because you had to go to the bathroom and you're just like, oh, my God, that resonated so deeply. This is the, the episode that will never end. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. <laughs>